So our scripture lesson was read earlier by Mariella, uh, really consisted of two things. Uh, one was the actual historical record uh, of the resurrection of Jesus, Luke chapter 24. We find all four gospel accounts have it. She read from Luke 24, the historical record. Then you have Romans, she read Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 10, where the Apostle Paul now is really declaring the personal response to the resurrection. Like, all right, it happened, it's historical now, what's our response to it? In Luke 24, we find that very early in the morning, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, both those women saw where Jesus was buried. Uh, they were there on that good Friday, a very good Friday as Jesus was hung on the cross, and they went and uh, buried Jesus. They knew that. Now it's Sunday morning, very early. Uh, they have spices, and they're running to the place where Jesus was buried to anoint his body for burial. You see, the time that Jesus went on the cross on Friday and then died and was taken off the cross, they put him in the grave because the Sabbath was coming. They had to get him in the grave before the Sabbath. There was no time to really finish the burial process. And we see in chapter 4 of Luke that the women got there, uh, and the Scripture says they were perplexed. There was a, there was a, they were at a loss. They were disturbed. They were uncertain because when they got there, the stone that sealed the tomb had been rolled away. It was now easy entrance into the burial place. Standing there were two men, actually angels. They were in dazzling apparel. And in fear, they bowed their heads to the face, their face to the ground. And the angels and the men said, look at verse 5, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. It's obvious that the women ran to the tomb to check, not to check to see if the tomb was empty, right? The fact is that it took spices, they were going there to anoint the decaying body, shows us exactly what they were expecting, Jesus' dead body. And even though Jesus said over and over again that he would rise from the dead, they're checking to see if they could put spices on his body. The angels knew why the women were there, and that is why they said Jesus should not be considered dead or really sought among the dead, because he's alive. So in other words, why are you walking around a graveside looking for someone who's alive? And actually then the angels were the first ones really to remind them of what Jesus told them multiple times about his death and about his resurrection. The angels repeated Jesus' word. Remember how he told you, verse 7, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. He told you this. And on the third day's rise, and then, verse 8, it says, Ah, we remember now. The verb must be, it's a strong word. It means, it must be, meaning it must, it's necessary. It's inevitable. Jesus must be handed over to sinful men. Jesus must be crucified, and then he must rise from the grave. It was necessary. It was inevitable. It is going to happen. And you may ask, why is that? Well, first of all, God promised in the Old Testament that the Lord's servant, the servant of the Lord, the suffering Jesus, would be a substitute for sinners. And he would die on a cross. In fact, here as a church, we're going through the book of Isaiah together. And a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 52 and 53. There was a clear description of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born, and Jesus died and rose again. 
Isaiah writes hundreds of years, he was pierced for our transgressions. That's the cross. That's the crucifixion. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity or the sin of us all. It says that this Lord, the servant of the Lord was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, he, was, he died. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. We know that from the gospel account that he was buried from a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, Isaiah writes, he shall see his offspring, meaning he's going to rise from the dead and see those he saved. He poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with transgressors. We know he was, died between two thieves. Yet he, Jesus, bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, Isaiah speaks about it. It was inevitable. It was necessary that Jesus must be and would be handed over to sinful men, be crucified because God's reputation is on the line. If it did not happen, God would either be a liar or weak, right? Unable to accomplish the things in which he promised. It was also inevitable and necessary because Jesus himself declared it over and over again at least eight times in the Gospel of Luke alone. Jesus was well aware that the things he was saying and proclaiming and doing and claiming would get him killed. He knew that. He was not taken into custody, beaten, flogged, thorn a crown on his head, and then nailed to a room and cross because he was a nice guy saying nice things, doing nice things for others. Although we know, ultimately, it was the will and predestined sovereign plan of God to have Jesus delivered over. But here in the scriptures, when it says Jesus must be delivered into sinful hands and crucified and rise from the dead, it is a reference to the willful decision of the people who participated in that action. Jesus handed over by the Jewish leaders into the hands of the Roman officials who crucified him because Jesus' claims that he is God himself. His claims of deity, his claims of authority caused them to have a mock trial and declare him guilty of blasphemy, claiming to be God. In fact, John chapter 5, verse 18, John uh, uh, writes this. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's the authority he had, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. All the claims, all the works, all the words of Jesus mean absolutely nothing if he had not risen from the dead. He too would be weak or a liar. Everything falls apart if there's no empty tomb. But family, friends, the tomb is empty. There's absolutely no explanation for a devout worshiper like the Pharisee, the Apostle Paul, to worship Jesus unless he was confronted by the risen Christ himself. There's absolutely no other explanation for a devout worshipers of the other apostles who were taught since they were small to worship no one but the one true God, otherwise they commit adultery, and we find them worshiping God unless they were confronted by the risen Lord Jesus. The historical reality of the glorious resurrection from the dead validates all that Jesus said, vindicates all that he did, and verifies all the victorious work of the gospel. If Jesus not had done what he said, his claims to be God would be laughable. 
If Jesus had not done what he said he would do, die and rise again, he would be deemed a lunatic. But rising Christ from the dead, God the Father places his approval of Christ's work, his suffering and dying on the cross for our sins. And the empty tomb verifies that the work of the gospel has taken place. His death and resurrection assures us that we have victory over sin, the power and penalty of sin, securing salvation for those who call upon him. On the cross, Jesus gets what we deserve. He takes our death upon himself. The Apostle Paul made it very simple in Romans chapter 4. He said this, Jesus was delivered up because of our sins, and he was raised to life because of our justification. Paul is saying that the resurrection proves that his mission to save, to rescue, to conquer sin was successful. His resurrection proves that he's the saver. He's not only willing, he is able to deliver us from the just wrath of God because of our rebellion against him. Romans, again, Paul said that the death Jesus died, he died to sin once and for all. And now he lives to God. So we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. For the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the historical record. That Jesus died on the cross. We've been set free from the power of sin and the payment of sin has been paid for by him. And that's the historical record. Jesus was crucified. He said he was. He said he was going to be and he was going to rise from the dead and he did. We see that in Luke chapter 24. Now, when we get to Romans chapter 10, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Paul takes this historical record of the resurrection and shows us how it's personally applicable to you today, to me today. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. See what Paul is saying? He says this, we are, we are told to confess and believe. Confess and believe. Not two completely separate actions, but more like one coin with two sides. Verse 9. If we confess Jesus as Lord, look at the end of verse B, 10. B. Confess with the mouth produces salvation. Right in the middle, end of 9 and beginning of 10. We're told to believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Verse 10, Paul says that that faith, that belief in that heart is one that will issue what? Justification. But what does that mean? What does it mean to have, to confess Jesus as Lord? Well, in that day, the Roman emperor became the worship object. It became a, a patriotic duty for all Roman citizens. In that day, Paul's, uh, the Roman creed in Paul's day was Caesar, the emperor. Caesar is Lord. So when a Christian would say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord, that's a problem. <laughs> that's a problem for them. Nero, the emperor at the time, was not a nice guy. Persecuted, tortured, and murdered Christians. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, Paul's on a missionary journey with Silas. And in Thessalonica, it says some of the unbelieving Jews were stirring up the crowd saying, you know what, these two guys preaching the gospel that Jesus is Lord, they're defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus, <laughs> declaring Jesus is Lord. A lot of trouble. You get in a lot of trouble with the Romans and with the leaders, the Jewish leaders of that day. In Romans chapter 10, verse 13, just two verses later, 
Paul says this, whoever calls on the name of the Lord, that's Jesus, will be saved. The Apostle Paul is taking a verse from Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament and applying it to Jesus. In Joel chapter 2, in the word Lord, it's Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God, a name that the Jewish people would not even pronounce. And here Paul is taking the name, the covenant name in Joel, and applying to Jesus because all the claims of Jesus is true. And let me tell you, when the apostles and the believers say that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar, it brought serious consequences for the Jewish people and for Rome itself. It proclaimed, listen, in the most plainest and clearest way, clearest words possible, that this Jesus, born of a virgin, came from Nazareth, died on a Roman cross, rose from the dead, is in fact God in the flesh. It means that Jesus' authority is absolute. It is unlimited, universally a sovereign, the sovereign Lord over all the universe. And those who acknowledge Christ by faith are acknowledging that they have placed themselves entirely and without reservation under his lordship. There's no salvation apart from his lordship. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Now, we falter, I know, but it doesn't change. Even though at a time when we want to be our own Lord, our own Savior, it doesn't change. It, 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 he is Lord. We acknowledge that. It, we, it, doesn't, it doesn't change our confession. It doesn't change our responsibility. It doesn't change our response. What does it look like, practically, to confess Jesus as Lord? I'm glad you asked. It's like training for the Olympics, Okay? A man or a woman training for the Olympics, they set their whole lives, their whole agenda on one common goal. The day of the race, the day of the swim meet, track meet, ice skating meet. Everything in their life becomes subservient, subservient and submissive to the one goal. No matter where they go, no matter where they're going to hike or they're visiting friends, or everything is compliant to that goal. Everything is seen through that one lens that day. Something comes up and it doesn't comply. It doesn't fit the goal. They don't do it. Where they go to the movies or they go move to another state. Everything they eat, all that they do, time they go to bed, is surrendered to the one goal. When we confess Jesus Christ as Lord, he is the center of our lives. Not one thing among many things, but he's the supreme thing above all things. And everything is subservient to him. And notice, though, Paul doesn't, again, not regard confessing with the mouth and believing in the heart as separate activities, but one. So Paul is saying in chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, that there's an inward response of believing as well in one's heart. There's an outward reflection of this belief by confessing with one's mouth. Jesus is Lord. It says, verse 10, it saves us from sin, death, punishment, eternal separation from God. But look at verse 10, nine, uh, end of 9 and beginning of 10. What does it that we need to believe in our hearts and what do we receive? It says we receive justification. God is holy. God is holy. God cannot and will not embrace evil and sin and brokenness. We know that. The requirement to enter into the holy presence of God is righteousness. It's being just. Someone who is free from sin, who can claim that they can stand before God as if they've never sinned. Family, that would exclude all of us in this room. 
But when you place your faith in Christ, his death in your place is payment for your sins. His bodily resurrection from the grave, God imputes, God gives to you, God grants to you, to your account, Christ's perfect life. When you believe in Christ, God declares you righteous, right, just before him. It means forgiveness of sins. It means acceptance with God. It means entering into his presence. And so when you believe and confess, you are covered with a cloak of righteousness. Not of our own, because we don't have it, but of Jesus. Now notice what Paul is asking us to believe in this verse. That God, what? Raised him from the dead. In order to believe that God raised him from the dead, you have to first believe that he was dead. I know that's something new for you today. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus died. That's a fact, the historical reality. And then he adds, for our sins. That's the purpose. Jesus died for our sins. So in order to believe in the resurrection, one has to believe in his death. One has to believe that he died for the purpose of and the payment of our sins. He atoned for our sins. And the reason why the resurrection must be believed is what the resurrection verifies, vindicates, validates that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's the point. The resurrection is the promise of God that the atonement of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ has been accepted and is sufficient to restore sinners like you and me with a holy God. The resurrection is the promise of God that those who trust in Jesus will receive his righteousness, just stand before him. Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead is much more important or much more than just simply accepting a fact. Some of you may be here and go, yeah, okay, I believe that, but what does it really mean? Well, it means that we're confident that God is for you and that he accepts you through the sacrifice of Jesus as his child. It means being confident of God's power, his love for you, That no fear of worldly loss or no greed for worldly gain will trap us and want to become our Lord. But Jesus is our Lord. He's our greatest treasure, our only hope, our means of salvation. Without the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christianity would be little more than a well-intentioned moral system. And God's plan of salvation for you this morning and for me is simple. Christ died for our sins and was raised again for our justification a righteous standing before him. Those two are inseparably linked together. Without his death, listen, without Jesus dying on the cross, there would be no basis for pardon, acquittal, forgiveness of sins, and without his resurrection, there would be no proof of the redemptive reality of his death in the first place. He has to rise again. Three practical things we'll walk away from this morning from our text. The resurrection can be applied to the past, the present, and the future. The past, the present, the future. We look to the past and we recall, even this morning, we recall uh, Jesus' awesome victory over the grave 2,000 years ago. On the cross, Jesus paid the debt. He, he absorbed our wrath. He died in our place. And family, for you today, this morning, means that your sins can be completely and utterly forgiven. All the foolishness, all the sin, all the shame can be wiped away forgiven as a free gift of, by faith today. The deepest and darkest stain on your soul can be washed away, never to oppress you again, never to harass you by any form of guilt. Today, the empty tomb, the cross, in the past, guarantees forgiveness. Cleansed 
washed today. We must look also at the present. Uh, at the present, the power of God. We see the present peace, the present forgiveness, the present assurance, the present hope. What Jesus did in the past now moves to the present in the sense that we can have hope, we can have assurance, we can have peace. Listen, empty grave means we can presently put away all fear. Jesus is Lord. (laughs) The resurrection means that the love of God is present with us today. His power is present today. His ruling comfort in our life is present today. All our hardship is under the wise counsel of God today. The past is crucifixion, the present power through the Holy Spirit, and we must look to the future. Listen, we eagerly anticipate that the same power that rose Jesus from the grave is alive in every believer. Jesus rose from the grave demonstrating that we too will rise again. Paul knew because of his union with Christ in his death, He had union with Christ in his resurrection. As I already mentioned in Romans 6, if you're united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly you shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Paul knew that God would keep his promises. God will keep his promises. God will will raise and resurrect his children in the way he rose Christ from the grave. So we know that the historical death of Christ as payment for our sins is truly available to those who believe because Jesus rose from the grave. A group of people, a group of young folks were in a mine and uh, exploring a cave. And while they were in the cave, a flash flood started uh, filling the cave. Something happened and water got in and started filling the cave. They tried to go uh, along this little cavern uh, and a ledge as the water kept rising, trying to get out. But the water got to their knees, and then the water got to their waist. And then the water got to their chest, and getting close to their faces, they were trapped. They really thought they were doomed. Then one of them said, you know what, there's got to be a way out of here. i got to figure it out. So he dove beneath the water and began to feel his way around and found the passageway. And he jumped up in the passageway, and he, and he, he found a way out. And he, and he was out of breath, and he's calmed himself down just for a minute. And then he jumps back into water and swims to the passageway to where his friends were. And as he came up out of the water with a big smile on their face, everybody else had a panic look on their face. He had a big smile on his face. They knew at that moment that he had found a way of escape. In a very real way, this is what Jesus did. He entered into the river of death, came out on the other side so that we know there is more on the other side. We know that Jesus' claims are true. We know that he is the substitute sacrifice for our sins. We know that death is not final, that the grave could not hold him. I mean, how would you know unless he rose from the grave? In a few minutes, three disciples of Jesus Christ are going to be baptized. That's why the tank is here. Jesus made it clear in Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, what his command was for his followers. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, as you are going, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's the command, this imperative. Make disciples, learners, followers of Christ, those who confess Jesus as Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. Make disciples of all nations, then baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, then teach them all that I've commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Baptism. 
is for disciples of Christ, followers who have received the saving benefits of the atoning work of Jesus and believe in his resurrection from the grave. And in obedience to the command of Christ, they're making a public profession of their faith and they're being immersed in water, identifying with the death of Jesus. They're rising from the water, identifying with his resurrection, believing that Christ died for sin and our death with him from the penalty of sin and then rising from the dead, we too shall rise. Our former way of life is over. We have a new life now. We're walking in the newness of life in the power of the glorious resurrection of Jesus. Now let me just say this finally. It's safe to assume there are people here in this room that have never really came to that place of saving knowledge of Jesus. Never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I'm compelled in love to inform you Apart from the saving relationship and the work of Jesus, we stand condemned under the hand of God. So I urge you this morning, place your faith in Christ. Accept the fact that he died for your sins. He went to the cross and that his death and burial and resurrection is sufficient to forgive you of all your sins. Acknowledge him as the only one that could overcome death. The only one who could die in place of sinners and that the tomb is empty. Trust Christ today. Don't leave here without repenting and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't stop trying to be your own savior. We have one. The tomb is empty. He is risen from the grave. Will you trust him today? Will you believe on him today? Will you get off the throne and and rest your assurance on him today? He died and he rose from the grave. The band's gonna come on up. We're gonna have a moment of prayer right now. And then after we pray, those who are getting baptized can come into my office, grab your stuff after my prayer, and then we'll get ready for baptism. You're going to hear some wonderful testimonies, and you're going to see, you heard the gospel, now you're going to see the gospel in baptism. It's just a wonderful time of the testimony of the work of Jesus. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that you did not leave us alone and in our sin, but you rescued us by saving your son, Jesus, who willingly went to the cross, who died sufficient enough for all our sins to be washed and rose from the dead. All that he claims, all that he said, all that he does is validated by his glorious resurrection. So Father, help us today. Help us to believe on you. Help us to trust you. Help us to to just rely upon all that you have provided for us. And we pray your blessing as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.